Hello, my name is David Ades. I'm a poet based in Sydney and the host of a monthly poetry podcast series called Poets Corner in association with Westwards in Parramatta in Sydney's West. Westwards is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of Westwards public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight that literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see a sharing and a closeness of spirit. So each month I invite a poet to read poems and talk about them for an hour or so on a theme of the poet's choice. Our poet today, whom I'll introduce in a moment, is Anthony, Anthony Lawrence, who will be reading and talking on the theme of the poetic impulse. Um, but before I start, I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. Uh, I'm recording this from Beecroft in Sydney. Anthony is recording from Moreton Bay in southern Queensland. I'd like to pay uh, my respects to and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging of the Wallamida people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and of the Kwandamuka people, the traditional custodians of the land in Moreton Bay. And to acknowledge also that they have that they are the sovereign owners of their land, which has never been ceded or given up. Anthony Lawrence has published 17 books of poems and a novel. His most recent collection is Ken, Life Before Man 2021. His books and individual poems have won many awards, including the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry, the Kenneth Slesser Award, the Judith Wright Calanth Award, the Philip Hodgson's Memorial Medal and the Blake Poetry Prize. A new collection of prose poems, The Side the Weather Does Not Love, is to be published in 2021. Anthony teaches creative writing and writing poetry at Griffith University and lives on Moreton Bay, Queensland. Hi, Anthony, and welcome to Poets Corner. Oh, thank you very much, David. It's great to be here. Thanks for the intro. That's all right. Um, now, you've chosen the poetic impulse as your theme. I'm going to ask the, the obvious first question. Uh, what do you mean by the term the poetic insult, impulse? Well, sometimes it is a poetic insult. <laughs> it's um, The poetic impulse is uh, something that I'm deeply interested in, um, mainly because I've, I've noticed over the years that, um, that, it, that it manifests itself in, in really interesting ways. And I've often wanted to uh, try to articulate it, to explore it. It's that moment which is often um, a, a quite a, a magical but strange alignment between the emotional and the physical, where an overwhelming sense of need um, befalls me, I guess, is not too heavy a term. Um, and there's little I can do to resist it. Uh, and, I, and, I need to, and I need to start writing. I've noticed over the years that it takes on quite a similar, um, it, it releases a, a similar spark in that um, it's, it's most often after I've been reading poetry, um, <clears throat> of course, you know, a single word or, or a phrase can just ignite us and drive us to the desk. Uh, but it's happened 
um, while I've been out on the continental shelf with no pen and paper. So I've had to use a, 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 the end of a screwdriver and a zinc plate that I found on the boat from an old bashed-up radio to record this stanza. Otherwise, it was just not going to get not going to get done. And the thing is, too, um, unless we attend to this very quickly, um, I, I learned the hard way, and I guess all poets have at some stage that if we uh, if we think that it's okay to consign that original blueprint to memory it, until we get a, a chance to write it down, it'll be okay. Occasionally it is mostly what, what happens is the distorted version of the original live wire. And um, I don't take chances with that. I haven't done so. It was very difficult riding my triumph around the place because um, on a long country ride, if, if that happened, I'd have to stop the bike, get off, take off the gloves and the helmet, go into the saddlebag, get a, get a pad and pen, Whereas if I'm driving, I can tend to steer with my knees and scribble something, you know. Um, but um, yeah, don't, uh, don't I'm currently worry. writing a little, a little paper, a little essay, in fact, on on driving and and the poetic impulse and writing poetry. The two have long, long had a very cozy, if sometimes perilous, um, relationship. Um, not so much anymore uh, that I've stopped drinking and don't roll cigarettes anymore. Um, because I don't tend to steer with my knees now while I'm having a stubby and a champion ruby. Now it's a matter of trusting in my handwriting while I steer and look at the road on a sheets of cardboard that I cut for that purpose that I have on my lap when I'm driving. So I just reach for a, a sheet of cardboard and my, my trusty black felt pen and away I go. But the poetic impulse is... Um, <clears throat> Really, really, my kind of um, um, useless attempt to track down the ineffable. I think as poets, we're um, we're in we're in full employ um, of the unachievable. It's why there are no perfect poems. It's why there are very, very good poems, wonderful poems. But there's no point in trying to um, to to track down anything beyond what we can do with the best of our abilities. Most of the poems that we write um, come close, I think, to achieving the sum of their true potential. Some of them hit the mark, but I'm very happy if I'm, if I'm able to write a poem that I'm, that despite its failings, it's small glitches and potholes. I, I can let it go because I don't, I don't really want to overwork things. I have done. Um, but but we need to know when to walk away. But from the very outset, um, you know, I don't, I don't look at a sheet of empty paper and wonder about how it could be improved. There's no time to, for that. I just dive in. And and um, of interest to me is is the fact that I write all my poems line by line. I I have never written a poem out in. In, in in one flurry, in in you know in a, in a sense of just getting it all down because I don't know what it all is and I don't have that I don't have that kind of brain maybe because until quite recently I, I had an undiagnosed adult ADHD condition which is the depletion of dopamine um, so that kind of miswiring neurological miswiring 
it's really of, of great interest to me because I do believe, in fact, it's one of the reasons why, with no family history of poetry, that I think this is this is the reason, the driving force behind why I, why I became a poet. I think um, we don't have time to go anywhere near exploring that, but but I but I'm really intending to do that in a in a paper on 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 the poetic impulse. <clears throat> Adult, in my case, adult ADHD. I've lived with it all my life. It's not something you suddenly develop as a teenager. Or, but I'm, but I'm on a course of Ritalin, and I have to say, it's a complete life changer. Unbelievable. Um, and I cursed the psychiatrist who <clears throat> diagnosed it. He did. He did say that this is that I was, you know, classic. And um, um, but he said, oh, no, when I asked him, you know, what are the chances of me not being able to write poetry once I start Ritalin? He said, oh. You probably won't be creative, but in but in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's sharpened my resolve and my attention to what's important. So, you know, I don't lose things anymore, and I'm able to make deadlines. And well, apart from my false teeth this morning, um, they're around somewhere. Um, but you know, uh, it's it's a big deal, and I look back on that young man that used to lose everything and get always in the bottom class at school despite being really bright um relationship issues it's just been really telling and the reason i looked into it so deeply was because i was watching a, a video quite by accident and um this professor in america was talking about adult adhd and i felt myself leaning in closer and closer as he was talking and by the end of this hour, I was like, I was really near close to tears because I recognised myself all my life. I ticked every single box. And um, anyway, it's been, been an interesting ride. So, Anthony, the, the poetic impulse in your sort of understanding of it is the, the compulsion to write? The compulsion to, to, to write in particular. I mean, there's, there's, there's a poetic impulse behind, behind lots of things, you know, choosing the right record to put on on a Sunday afternoon is part of that as well, but which will probably be Melanie's version of, of Ruby Tuesday. Um, <laughs> well, it was when I was hungover. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly the, the need to, to, to create. And that first line that I write, I have no idea often, most of the time, what it means. I really, I, well, I never have a theme. I never have an overarching idea and and that's because um that was reinforced when i read the wonderful advice by um by richard hugo the, the wonderful much loved um deeply influential poet who said that that the thing to remember most is that we need to to place our idea of subject matter into the service of our language not the other way around because the moment that we force our language to, to adhere to our idea of subject matter, then that's what we do. We, we will fall into a pattern of one dimensionality and writing to a subject rather than allowing um, the wonderful gift of our imaginations to be peripheral and associative um, and to explore the unknown, to arrive at a subject that really from the outset we didn't really understand until we started to write. And that's, that's a really big thing for me. And I, and I, I love that I'm able to trust in my intuition and imagination and, um, 
and enter a poem with really having no idea about where I'm going. And that, that pretty much applies to everything I write. I, I, I work on one line and then I'll finish it and then I'll, and then what now, you know, and then it will feed into another and, and then I've got the words and then I go, and then that wonderful marriage of craft and technique kicks in where, where line breaks are attended to. And, and I notice things like internal rhymes ringing off each other, even five or six lines away, mm. which I didn't understand why a poem sounded the way it did until I isolated those things. So, and stanzas and negative space and that beautiful pause for the eyes and why some stanzas um, announce themselves and, and in fact demand attention at the end when everything else has been tried, block form, tercets, and then suddenly the pomp, no, you've, it's quatrains, buddy. See you later, mm. you know. All right. Well, um, I'm going to ask you. You asked me to choose a whole bunch of poems that you from a whole bunch of poems that you sent, and I chose the ones that worked for me on on the day. Um, I'd really like you to kick off your reading with Daylight Star, if you would, please. Daylight Star. The only daylight star I've seen, apart from one that burns, the retina, long after exposure turned out to be the last international flight before borders closed, like theatre doors. I tried to imagine your face in a window on that 747 bound for London, although you might have been at home, moving from room to room and putting things into boxes. I'll never know. Communication and precise location have been abandoned as when a transponder is turned off unexpectedly. I am prone to confuse the sound of packing tape being torn from its roll with a fighter jet passing over a break wall where we had been scanning the sky for Sirius and Capella with binoculars I like to bring things closer than how they first appear. Your mouth and eyes to be unapologetically sentimental about it. Also the regulated bloom and fade of an artery in your neck that I love to time with nerves in the tip of my tongue. An airliner gleams and vanishes. A planet is mistaken for a star. Yeah, in the context of your theme of the poetic impulse, I really love the lines, I like to bring things closer than how they first appear. Is there a poetic mission beneath the poetic impulse to try and bring things into sharp clarity? Yeah, there is, David. And um, there is. And, and that, of course, has a lot to do with um, the use of, of literal or figurative language. And, I, you know, I think some of the poems from the early poems um, from William Carlos Williams in Patterson uh, uh, contain literal imagery where, and we often take this for granted when we're reading poems, that not everything has to be metaphorical mm. or or offer us alternatives, which of course is what similes do. 
offer us a chance to compare and contrast. His poems often detail exactitude and, and in that clean line writing, there are also just the most beautiful images. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's, all about, it's all about the combination of those things. And um, that's, how I, that's how I try to track things down. Is it about um, trying to understand the world? No, not really. I, I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> you know, <laughs> too but, hard. But but seriously, um, I I'm as troubled and as wondrous as anybody about being alive on this planet. You know, um, and poetry for me is as 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 any creative person knows. Um, whether it, whether you're a painter or, a, or an actor or whatever you do, whatever you were chosen to do, is a is is a way of making sense of the world and, and my life in it, and that's it's it's a it's a comfort to me and a help. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like your use of the word wondrous there because um, uh, I've often thought of the poetic eye, uh, mm -hmm. and I feel that everyone has it. Uh, it's it's uh, every time anyone senses wonder, they're looking at the world with a poetic eye, in my view. And, and, and I think probably everyone's a closet poet, whether they've written poetry or not. But I that, think that's right. But that's different from the poetic impulse, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, because that's what happens. That's what happens, you know, when, when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning or have an afternoon nap, whatever, or um, which Don Patterson says is very good for the heart, but I, I believe him, and that's a good thing. Um, so, yeah, the poetic impulse is really, um, I like to think of that wonderful Zen saying, you know, leap and a net will appear. And so that's, that's how it is, really. I, 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 can't, we can't afford to second-guess ourselves when, when we feel the need to create when that comes upon us, because if we do, then you end up marking time rather than taking a risk with, in my case, in our case, language, and diving in, and 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 not at not at the initial stage, but later on, that wonderful orchestration of vowel and consonant that we arrange while we're um, while we're drafting, and uh, I love that. That's the real writing, you know. And that I, I love I love spending a week or a, or a full day or a month on a poem, whatever it takes, to to finally get to the point where I just have to walk away. All right, let's dive into another one. Okay. Well, I'll read Conjuring because um, this is for my late uncle, Laurie Lawrence, 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 um, my dad's, my dad's elder brother, who was a, a spook in, um, in New Guinea during the war. Very interesting man, came back uh, with shell shock, wasn't called, um, PTSD then it was it was shell shock and um, there have been so many different names for it railway spine and all sorts of terrible things but um, Laurie was uh, was a, was a was a professor of geology at the University of New South Wales um, a remarkable guy um, and this poem is for him it's called Conjuring for Lawrence James Lawrence. Killing time was a saying my uncle took literally. Returning from war, he refused to wear a watch, 
and banned clocks from the house. The exception to this outlawing of visible time took the form of an intricate song machine, a box within a box that opened to reveal, after winding, an exotic singing bird that emerged through spring-loaded doors on a golden plinth with a miniature clock face set into it. The cogwheels and pins were so numerous and tiny when doing repairs, his tools might have been like those a cardiothoracic surgeon employs when reconnecting nerves. Reclusives, reclusive, he loved all-night vigils in his study, in surgical light. Staring through his loop into alexandrite, blue agate, and once in the red line fractures of a rhodolite garnet, he saw the feathers of the long-eared owl that called each night before setting out to trace the ultraviolet lines of vole and mouse urine in the grass. Listening, he remembered the tight bindings on shrouds at sea burials they had piped away sailing home from war. He turned off the lamp and opened a drawer. He wound the box and released the bird when the whirring gears and scaled down song had died away. He placed a finger to the inside of a wrist, timing his pulse as he'd done when the whistling rain of mortars had begun. Yeah, this poem to me is, is it in itself a kind of conjuring. Uh, yeah, all those things he, he based, I had long, amazing conversations with him. He was, a, he, was a, he was a nuisance too, because he, I was standing in his study one night where he kept his drawers full of all these beautiful minerals and rocks and bits of meteorite that he'd found. And he gave me this rock to hold and I was holding it and he started laughing. And I said, what's so funny? He said, you're being x-rayed because you're holding raw uranium. <laughs> He's holding some yellow cake there, buddy. So I gave it back to him and... Uh, <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a tender tenderness in this poem, a tender imagining, and it takes me into uh, where poetry can go because every every person is a person really unknown. You re really never can get inside somebody's head. Mm, that's right. All you can do is imagine a little bit of it, which is which is what you've done here and, and brought him to life. It's really an entry into the mystery of a person and at the same time uh, the poem is entering into the mystery of the poem. That's a really amazing thing to say David you're absolutely on the money and that's um, that's something really important to, to think about writing poetry is that we can't know. You write a love poem for someone that's that's writing a poem about a part of that person or part of the person that you know that it's impossible to know someone completely. And it really, um, this leads me into, into an argument that I've had with people over the years about um, it's poetry, so I'm allowed to make things up. Um, what about if I invent people that don't exist, but people then say to me, hang on a minute, you know, you don't have um, an elder sister or you don't have this in your life. Um, why did you do that when you knew it wasn't true? And I say, well, the bottom line is that I that I that I draw the line, in fact, on um, uh, on on not exposing people's inner secrets, so I don't set out to hurt people. 
but if but if I invent a person in a poem, uh, whether it's a dramatic monologue or whatever it is, where I can wear a mask while telling the poem, narrative, whatever, then I think that's okay. I'm not writing memoir. I'm a poet, um, and and whether I'm reinventing someone that I know or inventing someone from the outset, from the ground up, it's just all part of that wonderful process. Well, you can approach the truth from an imagination, can't you? Yeah, that's right. And I don't want to have to put a footnote into every book or every poem saying, by the way, this person isn't true, I made it up. You know? Um, it's up to the reader to, to define the terms of those things. Well, it comes back to that old argument about whether the narrator of a poem is really the poet. Yeah, that's right. Just right. because you use I doesn't mean that it's, that it's you. Hmm. Quite. All right. Got another poem? Yeah. Uh, look, uh, yeah, I'll read um, Outlaw Boxcar because um, this takes me back to a time when uh, this is classic ADHD day, day stuff. I used to turn up to my dad's work in a, in, a, in a ratty old suit with bare feet. And this dad was a personnel manager, you know, and um, he was so embarrassed that, I, that his son would turn up looking like that. And, but for me, I was being equally defiant and, um, and just myself, but, you know, pretty disrespectful. Um, uh, it's called Outlaw Boxcar. If I had a white horse with a mane, you imagine a horse should have, when riding it into the sheen of what's left of the moon, after a storm had taken to it with electric carving knives and a boombox, I would ride into my father's building and say, good boy, outlaw boxcar, as that's the kind of name you give a horse when you're trying to make amends for being a punk instead of a responsible son. And so you take the fire stairs five at a time, the sound of boxcars, iron shoes on the cement like a tap dance in competition in a tiled bathroom. And when you dismount outside your father's office and knock like a gentleman and say, Dad, it's me. I'm here to be the son you never had but wanted. The corridor going on into dark wood and shadow. And then your father is there, filling the frame of the door with a smile and offering Boxcar a palmful of coffee sugar crystals and rubs the star on his nose and looks at me like a father who understands his son has come, not home, but into the world of men. You are welcome here any time, he says. And then, as if an afterthought had set off a roadside device in his ear, and next time, take the lift. It's big enough for a clopper with a flame for a mane and a son with the horse-sized heart. So I have to ask you, Anthony, how did you come up with the name Outlaw Boxcar? No idea. Poetic impulse. I was expecting a saloon to appear in this poem somehow. Well, I know, you know, the, the swinging doors inside <laughs> Union Carbide. Uh, you know, um, in, 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 in Zetland. And, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I never got into an argument with Dad about Union Carbide because he, was, he loved his work and I didn't think it was worth my hire to kind of 
I did. I, I did mention it, but I didn't. I didn't go on because you know we had a pretty volatile relationship, and, and he had a good left talk and was and was a and was a. Um, he played rugby union for New South Wales country. He was a tough dude, but um, yeah. So I don't know. That name just appeared um, out of the ether. Really, uh, I love. I love the name. Outlaw box. It's a great name, and it, yeah, yeah. You ride yeah. into sort of country and western mode, and and that's right. You know, riding the riding, the riding the, the the carriages into into Oklahoma. You know, um, this poem is kind of like a wish, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, my dad passed away um, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, some things are never too late. No, I mean, you never stop having the conversation with him, even if he's no, not. No, you don't. No, absolutely not. And, um, you know, um, it's, I've been asked, why do you write so many poems either dedicated to your father or about your father? And I go, because so much was left unresolved. Well, you, you sort of mentioned before that, you know, you write a, a line by line. Yeah. Um, that's, that's actually the exception, that poem. That came quite quickly. But you still don't necessarily know where it's going to take you until you get there. Oh, no, not at all. I love that. that you is, must love that too, I don't love, you? Where I do love where, that. Where you, where, 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 where there's no signposts, you know. You don't have a compass. You don't have a map with a legend while you're writing poetry. You just, you're stepping in there with the faith that something's going to happen. And that's, that's its miracle. Yeah, yeah, and it's never the poem you think you're going to write. No, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, how do you how do you think the poetic impulse is different from the narrative impulse? Because many of these poems are also narratives. Yeah, I like to think of them as as, as narrative poems with a rich lyrical vein inside of them um, to, to help move things along. Um, I don't think there is a difference. Um, I, I I'm sure that Tim Winton, a, a novelist that I admire very much. Would, would would have some very interesting things to say about uh, he's also I mean he, he writes some astounding images that would be at home in any book of poetry you know mm. um, I'd like to ask him about the poetic impulse or the narrative impulse mm. uh, I, I, I imagine that there'd be similar crossovers mm. um, when I was writing my first and probably only novel in the half-light I remember sitting down and, and really the same things happening um, the, the, the novel began um, as a series of prose poems that morphed into a longer narrative. And, um, but, you know, the big difference is that you've got to be really in there for the long haul. I would go into my study in, up on the mountain, on the slopes of Mount Wellington in Hobart when I was writing it and, um, and, uh, and be in there all day and, you know, and emerge at the end of the day completely... Um, exhausted from living with imaginary people all day and listening to what they had to say and moving them around and it's a really strange enterprise writing a novel because um you know it really is like watching um, a sepia tone slow motion movie and just writing down what you see and hear mm. and uh, for me that was exactly the same kind of impulse mm. okay another poem sure um live wires I've always been really fascinated by uh, by the by the nasties in Australian water and and inland, uh, and and certainly box jellyfish uh, are up there, um, and particularly the Irukandji. 
those those tiny little things that are often smaller than your thumbnail with trailing wires that can kill you, but not just that, install in you apparently uh, an overwhelming sense of doom as 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 you as you go down as your internal organs start to shut. Extraordinary creatures, so live wires, and this is really uh, comes from. Uh, being stunned by 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 Portuguese man of war, also known as blue bottles, which are pretty tame, really, when you in the scheme of things. Leaving a delayed reaction to pain, side stroke out back of the breakers, you emerge in the neon strip lighting of your skin, and when you lie in the sand, begging her to urinate on the welts and lesions across your chest and shoulders like straps on a rawhide bandolier. She does, suggesting you don't make the request outside of emergency hours. And you love her even more when she says, Portuguese man of war and stingers. And as the urine dries and the pain gives way to an irritating surface glow like sunburn, you find a pair of oyster catchers using red beak spikes like pointers at the broken whiteboard on a cliff. So you follow their instructions, combing the beach for shells, stones and twists of driftwood, feeling again the whip and afterburn that follows swimming into live trailing wires. Then you settle back to watch light flare and die with its reminder that you're now on the critical side of middle age. And when you leave, reading directions in the Prince of Shorebirds and talking about medicinal intimacy, ghost crabs rise like the mantles of lanterns to repair the sand mandalas beside their holes. I like um, how in this poem, readers are given glimpses of things that are not actually um, fully articulated. So we're given a glimpse. We're given a glimpse of a very helpful woman who has a certain. It does work. Yeah. Who has a certain degree of humour <laughs> as she goes about helping the person. And we're yeah, given a yeah. glimpse of the you being on a the person being in a particular point in life. If it wasn't a heavily populated beach either. I might hasten to that. <laughs> Just as well. Um, how much? How much? of the poetic impulse is to leave things unstated? Oh, what a great question. I think it's a huge part of it. And I think it's a huge part of it because if, if I don't know um, what's going to be happening next, you know, when they talk about, uh, I, I think Charles Simich's book, um, Who's a really fine, as you know, surrealist in the in the in the in the in the tradition um, um, of of Popa and other former Yugoslavian poets? Um, that wonderful kind of Serbian tradition, in, for example, of um, um, uh, of magic realism in poetry. Um, a, a critic said about um, the world doesn't end. That you never know what's awaiting you inside a simich palm uh, when you, as you're reading a bludgeon or a kiss and so that's really what 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 it's like when i'm writing i i'm 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 
anticipating something that I have no idea what it might be, but the anticipation is is heightened, and um, uh, and and so while I am trying to work things through, not knowing where I'm going, the unknown is always there, and and if it announces itself um, as an important part of a poem where things need to be left unsaid, unchecked, then then that's exactly what happens. And so the poem will remain, or elements of the poem will definitely remain unresolved. And I think that's a really good thing. I think um, a lot of younger poets or beginning poets tend to over-explain things because they feel that they owe it to a reader or themselves perhaps to, to fill in the gaps, to paint by numbers, to really... Um, leave leave no uh, turn unstoned. Hmm. Yeah, um, I could ask you more and more about this, but I'm conscious of time, so I'll get you to yeah. another poem. Okay. I think telling the wasps is a good poem to read here. Um, there's a there's a, a very ancient tradition of going out to tell the bees about some about a death. Um, but I wanted to invert that and to tell the wasps. Telling the wasps. A variation on the tradition of going out to tell the bees of a death is to locate wall-mounted estates of paper hexagons whose residents have fighter pilot eyes, trailing legs, and seem less troubled by details of dying than having someone enter the stinging zone where injections of noradrenaline are given in quick succession. And passing through, mention your delight in finding shades of blue, a wall of ice, a vein, a plan to seduce yourself in a bed of cornflowers. Then say words wasps like to hear, afterlife and forgiveness repeated as a mantra into waves of humming air and reveal your secret life, including the belief that love when it ends is another kind of death. And as the weight of your grief begins to lift, follow the consoling flight of the acoustic moth into meadowlands, the overhanging limbs of river trees, the bells of wildflowers and cottage gardens as bees exchange plans for survival in times of disease or fire. Um, this poem is not about wasps at all, is it? No, <laughs> not at all. They just happen to be the vehicle that I chose to carry the um, the undercurrent of the poem along. Yes, and, and when you're saying um, you <laughs> your secret life. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is really the poetic impulse, isn't it? Your, it your... absolutely is. It's it's amazing, you know, brilliant. That's exactly what it is. The whole poem is about the poetic impulse, really, without having to kind of over-explain it. Yeah, um, just sort of going through some of these poems and the other ones that you sent me, it seems to me that wherever you go in a poem, and whatever whatever their framework, your poems are always returning back to the human condition. Uh, but yeah. and and you've kind of answered this question. The question I was gonna I was gonna say was, but in a way where whatever insights may be gleaned along the way, nothing is ever resolved. 
and and that and you've actually answered that you 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 said that. that's that's right yeah I mean I it's not intentional I don't I don't mean to um, you know to to leave the gate open all the time but there's no point in closing it either you know there's there's um so so it, things need things are un unresolved. I think the older we fact, get, the less we know. <laughs> the older we get, the less we know. And in fact, if Charles Wright, for example, one of my favourite poets, um, if, if, if it's true, and I think this is right, that his, his entire writing, his whole writing life has been one extended elegy, that he's, that he's using the elegy to define the natural world, his relationships, his time in Italy, whatever it is, I think this is the natural condition of the poet to 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 be elegiac and um, not to eulogize, but but I think it's it's really interesting that that I see a lot of my poems as as elegies just to being alive. Mm. You know, you don't have to 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 write elegiacly about about you know death or the afterlife. It's there's enough of that here, you know, and um, just not knowing what's going on from day to day and um, and really being aware of the impossibility to come to terms with the ineffable. And I, and that it, for me is, is exciting and daunting all in one go, you know, um, it's, it's the natural vehicle for the elegy poetry. Mm. All right. Another poem, please. Um, a wild boar walks into a hearse. <laughs> okay. And says nothing. Because the forklift tines of its tusks are jammed in the chrome trim of the door. The driver gets out and kneels beside the swine with hair like broom straw and offers a hand. Releasing a razorback must surely rate high among activities likely to cause disfigurement or death, yet a flurry of funerary cloth and feet, and the boar is in the gutter, eyes like onyx replacements during mortuary repairs. Traffic has jammed the road where a Walt Disney doppelganger and clown are going toe to wedding ring under a stop sign. But we have no need to concern ourselves with peripheral details. The hearse pulls away like soil bandage from the curb. And the boar goes to wherever things wild, wherever wild things go, after close encounters with caretakers of the dead. Well, it's interesting that you um, that you were talking about Charles Simich and surrealism because this this is about as surreal as it gets. Yeah, I have no idea what this poem's about. <laughs> Maybe someone else could tell me. Um, but I love that. I, I have no idea. I, I, you know, I, I'm very fond of the poem. And as I tell my students, you know, you don't have to have your poems don't always have to make sense. If you're if you're if if you're true to your language and your imagination and you you take risks with language and syntax and and you work hard on them and at the end you really don't have any idea about what you've done, that's fine. Let the reader work it out, you know. Well, I mean, the the reader has that. Um position of bringing their own perspective to something. Yeah. So there's always going yeah. to be a different reading of whatever was intended anyway. That's right. Um, now, this in this poem, you address the reader 
Mm. But we have no need to concern ourselves with peripheral details. Yeah. Um, just after having introduced some peripheral details, um, as as a as a reader, yeah. I, I love being addressed by writers. I, I, yeah. It makes me complicit in whatever's going on. Mm. Um, I like it too. Yeah. Except if you're except when I'm reading Murray Bale, because he uses damn parentheses. You know, I think I think they should be banned. They should be stricken from the language. Uh, in, in creative writing, as soon as you enclose something in brackets, it draws undue attention to itself and takes you out of the narrative. I wish you wouldn't do it. There's no need for it. Did, did you have a particular intent in doing that here? That sort of. Um, no, I didn't know what I was doing, apart from the fact that I, to concern ourselves, meaning I don't want to go back and have to explain why these guys were fighting under a stop sign. Um, let's just accept the fact that they are and, and get on with it, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you've got two more poems for us. Okay, lovely. Um, well, well, let's go back to horses. This one's called Night Horse. This is this is based on an experience um, I had as a young man working on Yanko Station, which in fact Philip Hodgins and I used to talk about um excitedly because we both uh, had worked on this place and also uh, had fished for yellow belly and redfin in Yanko Creek and trapped fish and Murray caught Murray cod and all sorts of amazing things um, in the rivers. Um, so the night horse um, is a job that I used to do as a jackaroo where I worked on this farm for a couple of years and um, it's a sheep station with 300,000 acres uh, since subdivided and sold off into much smaller lots in the Riverina outside Duraldery. But the job was at uh, four o'clock in the morning to go out, saddle up the night horse that was in its stall and go out and get in the working horses for the day from a hundred acre horse paddock. Um, and the, the bay mare would, would, would be wearing a cowbell. So he'd listen in the black and follow the sound. And you'd find them most often at the far end of the, because they knew, the far end of the paddock down in, in, a, in a wadi, in a gully and um, get in behind them and have all the gates open and bring them back into the horse yard for the day's work. Everything was mustering back then. No ag bikes, no choppers. Night horse. I teased the night horse from her stall with an apple that reveals on its skin windfallen versions of grass and sky where it was found at the hour the fox returns to a shade of red commonly seen in the high velocity wound it takes in its stride, then to ground. I call the night horse by her name. She moves and makes a hollow sound of living weight against the wood. The grain worn smooth from years of horses called from sleep before the sun's own work begins. I shake a blanket, then throw it like the fabric used in magic tricks to make things appear to vanish. Yet here, in dark intensified at the sides of a flashlight beam, stirabines and shadows are still enthralled to the ghosts of cattlemen. The night horse leads me into dawn which begins as a line that breaks and mends on both sides of a fence. The wire strands lit up as if from within. 
from 16 hands high, the view is as good as it gets. I have to ask you, Anthony, how many years after this occurred did you write the poem? Oh, about, about 25. Isn't it interesting how these things stay with us? Yeah, I couldn't have written that poem. I was too young and also the poems I was writing back then were chronically sentimental and, um, and Rod McEwen copies and um, Richard Brodigan copies and uh, Leonard Cohen copies and uh, um, terrible things. But, you know, you've got to do, you got to start somewhere. Um, uh, uh, so this poem had to wait. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, to me, it's like a classic um, poetic impulse paying homage to a moment. Yeah, it really is, David. Um, I, whatever, whatever, I, I can't remember. I, in fact, I wrote it, the first poem I ever published was called Night Horse in New Poetry in 1975. Uh, Adamson, Bob Adam, Robert Adamson published it in New Poetry after I sent it to him. Um, and, and I was thinking about that. In fact, I found that issue where I, I share a, I'm opposite Gig Ryan, so it was amazing, you know, back in the day um, to be such a young bloke, first published poem among with a poet whose work I really like. So I was thinking about that, and then all those memories came back, and then that was the impulse for writing Night Horse. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. Maybe I'll read, um, finish up with um, uh, Rowing Out to Check the Traps. It's a poem for our, for our time, really. Keeping time with the catch and release of the current, I am rowing out to check the traps, loving the knock and settle of wood in the oarlocks, a gannet riding over on another kind of current. And as the hood on my anorak rustles and the oars rise and fall, I say, words inherited from my father, who knew the names of fish, cloud patterns, seabirds, and combinations of tablets he would swallow without fear of contraindication, such as leaning forward as though he were deep in prayer instead of pain, or knowing philosophy is useless in the full immersion of a loss of intimacy. And now that time alone has become first and second nature, in his absence, with the borders of the world locked tight as bivalves, solitude is a commentary on plankton, milt, apex predators, and outtakes from journals solo sailors scribbled into. Also my love of the cold startle of wave spray I ship the oars and drift from the green blur of land and thoughts of contagion, the current drawing me away, the ocean going on. And soon I am too far from shore to turn about and take up the oars, yet not beyond the limits of what it means to be lost at sea, the traps forgotten, the ones I cobbled from tomato steaks painted with creosote and covered with wire, Abandoned on a reef, as I circumnavigate myself as much as the outline of the shore. Out of touch, but not outcast in the time I have and the time I have left. 
Yeah, I I um I was mesmerized by this poem, Anthony. I've got to say, um, I could feel a kind of rhythm in it: the catch and release of the current, the oars rise and fall, the meandering drift from the green blur of land, solitude, circumnavigation, where time alone has become first and second nature. The time I have and the time I have left, and I mean, you could read it as parable or as allegory or as any number of different things, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Elegy. Elegy. And 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 what are the traps you're really checking? Uh, they, they, the, the, the traps don't exist. The traps are metaphorical. That's exactly right. You're That's picking right. up on everything today, aren't you? You're right. amazing. <laughs> Goodness gracious. The traps are the traps are, are pitfalls of my own, of things that I really either have control over or, or don't have control over. But ignore regardless, and and so and and move around them all the time, you know. And we all have them. Could we do this? Could be subtitled um, a short essay on on adult ADHD. You, know? <laughs> well, you don't have to have ADHD to have these kind of issues going on in your life. I don't think. I mean, oh yeah. Um, look, what? Just while I'm here, can I can I just mention a few new poets that I've discovered that I might like to pass on to people because. Um, you know, as as you are, you know, an avid reader um, of 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 anything that I can find that has poetry in it. I've just made a list up here on the whiteboard. Um, there's a wonderful um, a poet who's just won the international poetry uh, pamphlet competition in in the UK, and his name is um, Dean Brown. B R O N B R O W N E is in Jackson Brown. He's remarkable. Um, I can't wait to see this pamphlet, but he's a real find, a young guy from Northern Ireland. Northern Irish, can you imagine? I mean, imagine that whole group that Muldoon came out of with, you know, Muldoon and 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 um, and, uh, and and Heaney, of course. Um, Michael Michael um, Michael Donahue, that whole group. Um, Claire Pollard uh, has been around for a while, but she's a knockout British poet published with Blood Axe. <coughs> Terence Hayes. Yeah, I love Terence um, Hayes. Yeah, he's wonderful. Wind in a Box, what a knockout book. Um, of course, <clears throat> Michael Donaghy, if, if no one knows about Michael Donaghy, then you need to break a land speed record and get to wherever you can to grab that book. It's his collected poems called Smith, edited by... Um, Don, by, by Don Patterson, Scottish poet. Donaghy, I think, is, is not a, he left a massive hole in contemporary poetry when he died young. Died at 50 of a cerebral hemorrhage and um, published only three books in his lifetime. But every one of them is just filled with masterpieces uh, of, of controlled wildness um, and, and attention to form and detail that is just breathtaking. Um, wow. Uh, Liz Berry, of course, and my old favourites, you know, James Wright, Charles Wright, Muldoon, Cannell, Sharon Olds, Basil Bunting, <laughs> Jeffrey Hill, Sheets and Kelly. Uh, yeah, so many. I mean, you know, as you know, it, 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 it's a long list, isn't it? It's endless. It's, it's a long list, yeah. King David, you know. <laughs> um. I th think we should mention also uh, for our 
viewers that we're going to try something new and we're going to um, post copies oh. of your poems uh, when we do the record the podcast. So um, look out for that. Mm, that would be great. Thank you so much, Anthony, for sharing poems and insights on the theme of the poetic impulse. It's been a great oh, thanks, David. This has been a really wonderful chance to talk about something that I'm both in awe of and <clears throat> really have no answers for, but love to discuss. So thank you for your really insightful, generous questions. And um, I look forward to, to having it out there in the world. When, when this video is posted, it will include information on Anthony's books. You've got to get it to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look out for that. Um, please check in again at the end of July when Poets Corner will be back with uh, featuring Michelle Seminara on the theme of suburban noir. Look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.